I want to welcome you to this session on making short-term global health care mission trips ethical, equitable, and ecologically responsible. Now, that, those are a lot of big words. Uh, I'm not sure we'll be able to answer all those questions, but hopefully we'll make you more aware of them and make you think a little bit. So I want to introduce my two co-presenters, uh, Margaret uh, Tarpley, who is, has a master's in library science and is a past master at finding things in the literature. So if you ever, if anybody needs any help uh, doing that, why contact her. Her husband, Dr. John Tarpley, is a general surgeon, and they served as missionaries in Nigeria for about 10 years, or a little over 10 years, in the 1980s and early 1990s. When they came back to the U.S., uh, Dr. Tarpley became the program director for general surgery at Vanderbilt. And about five years ago, he retired, uh, and they went back to uh, Africa, in East Africa, and visited several mission hospitals, as well as the University of Rwanda. And then Dr. Tarpley was asked to start a general surgery program in a new medical school at the University of, uh, of Botswana. Are you having trouble hearing me? No? You can hear good? Uh, so, so my wife is having trouble hearing. <laughs> uh, it is over. I, I can't do that unless I get. <laughs> maybe, maybe if I raise it a little bit. But then it will be too high for Maggie. Oh, there we go. Okay, we'll try that. Is that better? Okay. Uh, now that I'm completely discabooled. Uh, anyway, they uh, they came back to the states, and uh, Dr. Tarpley is now the uh, program or is the, uh, uh, the dean of academic medicine for uh, Pan African Academy of Christian Surgeon. I'm a retired old laryngologist, spent my career at Oregon Health Science University, and then spent time at the University of Singapore, and have led several uh, short-term teams uh, in a various different countries with uh, Medical Education International and the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. So, why is global health care education a hot topic today? I think for us as Christians, we would use the verse from Matthew 28, that we all hear so often when we talk about missions. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, etc. If you are involved at all in a uh, secular setting, interviewing medical students or resident applicants, uh, they frequently will ask you, what does your program or does your medical school have in the way of global uh, opportunities for us? Most medical schools now have a department of global education or global health, and so it's become a very popular topic. One of the reasons that it has become so popular is, compared to, say, in the 1800s, early 1900s, is rapid economical air travel. Uh, you can go to Africa in 24 hours instead of taking weeks or months to get there. Also, tropical medicine has become very important. But one of the problems with that is a lot of the departments of tropical medicine are located in high-income countries, particularly in Europe and North America. 
And so this has led to a lot of paternalism and asymmetric power dynamics when it comes to tropical medicine. It's divided the world into the global south and the global north. And the global north is mainly Europe and North America. And there is a division uh, in asymmetric power dynamics with that. Now, about a year ago, uh, Margaret Tarpley found this article from the British Medical Journal. And this was what really stimulated us with the idea of doing this at GMHC. We felt that it was something that might be of interest and be of use. So our objectives are that by the time we finish, you will understand the importance of making short-term teams a valuable experience for both the host and the team members by being ethical, equitable, and ecologically responsible. Uh, also, that it's important that we get requests from the host, not that we tell them what they need. Team members should have expertise to share, and team members should be selected on an equitable basis. And then we'll talk about the importance of training and preparation for the team before departure, including being ecologically responsible. So we're going to have Dr. Tarpley come up now, and he's going to be talking about ethics. It'll take us just a minute to change over here. Thanks, Thank you very much for being here, and if you can't hear me, let me know, because I think I can make it happen. So my assignment today is ethics, and uh, my disclaimers, I have no financial disclaimers. I am a global enthusiast, and I work for a faith-based NGO, uh, Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. So there are ethics, and then there are ethics, and so there are ethics, and there are ethics, uh, and so I'm going to basically give you 40 PowerPoint images in about 14 minutes. My wife's only got four. But this is really a bibliography because I've got articles and, and book chapters that I think are important to you. And I'll give you my email address. And if you email me and say, can I have the PowerPoint set, then I'll send it to you and even some of the key articles if you need them. Uh, so first off, as a preliminary thing, the Lancet Commission recommended a minimalist the number of surgeons of all types, that's S, anesthesiologists and obstetricians, gynecologists, of a low number. This is the minimalist number, 20 per 100K. Chris Ellison, who's been past president of American College of Surgeons, said we need 7.5 general surgeons per 100K in the United States. Uh, basically, in sub-Saharan Africa, we have 24% of the global burden of disease. We have 3 to 4% of the workforce, and we have a huge deficit in the number of workers, and that's what PACS is trying to address in part. So I don't want you to read this, but basically in a place like Burundi, they've got one surgeon for like 500K. And if you look at all of East Central Southern Africa that we work with, there's basically a half a surgeon for 100K or one surgeon for 200K. And that's different from the U.S. with 55. So is that ethical? Well, if you look at New York and Malawi, they both got 19 million people. New York State's got 4,400 surgeons and 4,400 anesthesiologists. Malawi's got 65 surgeons and less than 10 anesthesiologists. And we can't provide safe operations without anesthesia. Tennessee has 45 pediatric surgeons for 1.5 million children. And Kenya has 25 pediatric surgeons for 24 million children. 
And you really can't dent neonate and infant improvement unless you have one per two, a quarter million. So if you look at all physicians, not just surgeons and anesthetists, this is the map. The map points out you almost can't find Africa. I mean, it looks like an exclamation point, right? I mean, you've got Egypt up at the top, a little bit of RSA, South Africa down at the bottom, but this graphically demonstrates that the physicians are not in Africa. So ethics, by definition, are moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. Uh, Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, it's a branch of philosophy that dates back even to Hippocrates, who was a century before Aristotle, but really the academy in Athens and Aristotle wrote on virtue ethics, and he had two major uh, ethics that, uh, books that he wrote. Really, medical and biomedical uh, ethics arose really from World War II, the Nazi experimentations, the subsequent Nuremberg trials in code, the Belmont Report, the Helsinki Declaration, the Geneva Declaration, and the uh, experiments, quote-unquote, related to Tuskegee with uh, syphilis. This is, a, this is an article in the bulletin that basically says, M&M conferences are a great forum for seeing and drilling down on ethical issues, and I just recommend that to you in your own, whether you're stateside or you're overseas, that's a good forum. Uh, ethics as it is one of the nine technical skills, and it's important for surgical education and also important stateside as well as sub-Saharan Africa. And some of the things we focus on there are autonomy, but this can relate to religion and culture, autonomy related to informed consent, beneficence, quality, and safety, which are the two big buzzwords in the states, justice and non-maleficence, and this is related to our international collaborations, which Jim just mentioned, justice, and that really relates to access to care, and that socioeconomic access as well as distance, being able to get to the care, uh, and how close is that available. Justice and autonomy, uh, resource utilization, things like end-of-life decision-making, and then justice related to research ethics, shared authorship, collaboration, informed consent, and the use of African literature databases, which uh, Maggie will uh, talk about. So this was a letter to the editor of the uh, uh, World Journal of Surgeons, which basically states that, that we want to encourage inclusiveness and meaningful recognition of our colleagues and coworkers that might appear technically as honorary, but without them, we could not do any of the research that's done. I'm going to Angie Wall is a name I want you to know about, but she is a uh, she's a surgeon. She's a transplant surgeon now, but Ph.D. in ethics as well as a surgeon, and talks about the context of ethical pro- uh, problems for medical volunteers. And these are some of the references I want you to know. She's written a book on a practical guide for aid workers in developing countries. And these are some big names: Angie Wall, Peter Angelos, Doug Brown, Ira Codner, Jason Kuhn. These are from St. Louis and other places. These are really important folks, and this is really an outstanding, like, 35-page uh, current problems in surgery from a decade ago, but it's still very current. And, again, ethics in global surgery. Uh, this is pediatric surgery. Ben Woma, who's at uh, Nationwide in Columbus. Uh, Krishna Murphy is in, in Colorado, and Emmanuel May is in uh, Nigeria. And what they point out is, is if you look at the four major poles of historical uh, with Beecham, with uh, beneficence, non-maleficence, justice, and autonomy, we want to add on not only individual ethics, but global health ethics and then global surgery systems ethics as we go forward. Uh, Catherine Chu 
is at uh, Stellenbosch in South Africa, and this is uh, talking about equity and global health collaborations. So there's a book that I won't ask you to buy, but hopefully your, your library might have it. These Springer-Verlang books are too expensive. But within this book on global surgery uh, by Mark Hardy and Beth Hochman, there's a, probably the, the best article I've read in 20 years related to this topic. And I recommend this one to you, and this is one that I would love to make sure that we maybe can help you, you get. Uh, written by three individuals who work at the University for Global Health Equity in Butaro in northern Rwanda, almost to the Ugandan border. Uh, and I'm just going to race through some of this. Uh, how to maintain ethical standards. There are four domains they discuss, clinical care, research, education, and collaborations. And they've got about 20 quotes that I pulled out from the article. Uh, decolonizing is an essential part of the journey to equity. We want to be not be poor guests. We want to be appropriate guests. Planning based on local needs and priorities, mutual benefit, clarity in terms of engagements, roles. The guests must not create dependence. We don't want to divert funds, human or material resources from ongoing patient care their initiatives and projects. We want to think about the carbon footprint, which relates to uh, the global effect on it, uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. Uh, we are a disposable society in the United States. If you look in those red bags outside of a theater in the United States, it's incredible, and especially with MIS related to laparoscopic and robotic uh, procedures. Uh, develop uh, firsthand cultural, religious, and social awareness. Encourage purposes with the local supply chain. And don't perceive yourself as an expert just because uh, you're from overseas. And informed consent must be true informed consent, and that's a whole talk in itself. Quality of care, be inclusive. We need to have good follow-up. Outcomes, including complications, must be evaluated and documented. I maintain that we shouldn't go and do. We should go and assist and help, and we should be, like, essentially, if as a surgeon, professional First assistance. We should not be taking cases away. We should be upscaling the people that are on the ground using their equipment, their anesthesia, their post-op care, and making it as safe as we possibly can. Document, document, document. Another talk. End of life. We're not even really close yet with organ donation and transplantation, though there are some living-related uh, transplant programs that are going on. Ethical quality improvement. Transborder global surgery education. And don't assume that just because we're from the West that we know better. There are a thousand articles are produced annually by global partnerships. We want to appropriately involve our colleagues there in LMICs. We want to grow their capacity. There's a guy named Charlie Mock at Seattle and T. Peter Kingham at Memorial Sloan Kettering. They have spent the last 15 or 20 years, each of them, developing the research capability, uh, Mock in Ghana and uh, Kingham in Nigeria, such that now, the people they've trained are writing for the grants, getting the grants, implementing the grants, and they're doing research appropriate to their environment for them, not just to get into some Western journal. Uh, you need IRB and ethics committees, and there will take delays to do that in the states, and they take delays overseas as well. Data management, where is it going to be stored, publishing, where are we going to publish it, and photography and social media issues are very fraught with problems. So I never knew about the Monet principles until I read this most recent article that just came out, this, this chapter that just came out. But the Monet principles cover about 25 or 30 really important principles, and there's pages of them. But it's really partly, a, mostly about relinquishing the power 
by the northern partner and accepting the autonomy of the southern partner. So really, capacity building should be at the core of our collaborations. There are ethical quagmires ahead. This is actually a big deal. Uh, I like this physician's prayer, which was in the British Medical Journal, from inability to let well alone, from too much zeal for the new and contempt for what is old, from putting knowledge before wisdom, science before art, and cleverness before common sense, from treating patients as cases, and from making the cure of the disease more grievous than the endurance of the same, God deliver us. So the, the, the motto for the American College of Surgeons is to serve all with skill and fidelity. We don't do that in Nashville, Tennessee, and I bet you don't do it in your state either. We've got Appalachia where patients are coming out and going to University of Kentucky. We've got the great Northwest where distances are really a problem. You've got Alaska. You've got the, the, the Indian Health Service. And we've got geographical and other issues that thwart us here. Uh, these are my email addresses. You can get me at either one of these. And I think you can find me pretty easily there. Uh, and I, I, well, I, there's, a, there's an article that I'm not going to talk about today, but yesterday in the Annals of Surgery, which I would argue is our number one surgical journal, there's an, an, another article that's just come out about ethics, and it's written by Doug Brown and others, uh, some of our leaders within the surgical ethics field and everything. And uh, I can also get that one for you as well. So with that, I'm going to stop and turn it over to Maggie. Just fine. Good afternoon. Everybody here okay? Okay. Some of you have probably seen this cartoon uh, comparing equality and equity. And one of the things that I want to talk about today is that when we think about equity, it's not equality. Equity means bringing people up to the same level. And it may mean that somebody has to give up their box in order for somebody who has less to be able to see or take part in something. And part of what we're doing today actually grew out of last year's missions conference here in Louisville. One of our keynote speakers spoke about how COVID had affected the British Medical a Missionary Society in how they re-looked at what they had been doing in the way they had been sending teams of young people, various teams to various places internationally. And when they looked, when they stepped back and were no longer doing this, they started thinking about carbon footprint, groups of people going places. And it caused me to actually look up and see some of what had been done with British Missionary Society. And it was true that they had started looking at what they were doing in a new light. And I think that really affected what we're sharing today because I think one of the most important things we need to do when we're doing any kind of missions is what is the value added, not just for us who are taking part in these trips, but what does it mean for the people for whom we are going to work with? And so it starts at home and in the planning for an international mission project, or we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, even a local project. 
but has this project been requested by the host, or is this something that someone is a good idea and they've just looked around at various people they know around the world and sought somebody that might be willing to accept their team? Is cultural humility and sensitivity provided before the trip? Do you actually take time to learn about the culture that you're going to and differences that there may be with the people you're taking and the people you're visiting? Everything from clothing to language, uh, food, and accommodations. And is this mission scheduling being done with the host in mind? Or do you say, our kids get out of school in June and July, so I need to plan this trip uh, with you in June and July, so in case I want to bring my kids, I can. You need to ask the host, when is it convenient for us to bring a team? Maybe it won't be in June or July. Maybe their schedules are more geared toward a different schedule. The rest of the world doesn't all go from August to May. Many people use a calendar year of January to December. And this is another thing to give careful thought about. The financial considerations. Are they preventing some of the people, even in your own institution or church, from taking part? How is this trip funded? Do individuals have to come up with that money? Is there a church mission fund? Are people expected to send letters to their friends and families? But what about the people who don't have friends and families that have financial well-being. And another thing, what if there are physical barriers for the place that you're thinking about going? What if you have very able people in your congregation, but they have mobility issues? They use a walker. Maybe they're even in a wheelchair. Maybe they have some kind of dexterity issues. Are you going someplace where an accommodation can be made for these people? Or are you going somewhere that those people just will have to be left behind because you can't make an accommodation for them? So the equity continues as we think about the education for short-term experiences. Are the visiting team members qualified to do the work that you're sending them for? Do they need licensing? Is that required? Uh, Many people in medical uh, haven't always realized that there's strict medical licensure in many places in the world, not just in the United States. And just because we're Americans does not mean that we're automatically welcome to practice uh, our skills. And are the local health care professionals equal members of your team? Are they going to be integrated? You're not just pushing them aside so that your people can do cases and have an experience. Are they integrated? Are you doing value added? Are you training? Are you teaching? And are you taking people to do tasks that locals could do alone or even be paid for, such as painting a building or other semi or unskilled work. Yes, teenagers can all paint a building, but does that mean that somebody in that community actually is losing an opportunity to make some money that might be important in their family? Does this visit 
provide training and capacity building opportunities to the local health care professionals and even the community members. And is this trip a commitment, a long-term commitment to this community? Or do you just go someplace every year differently so you can attract people to go because they might want to see a different part of the world? And when you plan recreational excursions during your mission, not before or after, but if you're planning things during your mission, are your hosts and the people you're working with welcome and invited to attend those uh, uh, experiences? So what about at home? The playing field is also in your neighborhood, your community, your state, even in our nation. And sometimes these local and regional opportunities are more affordable to your volunteers, and you may be able to work out accommodations for people who have physical limitations if you do something closer to home. Local gives opportunities for those people who can't afford to be away from their work or their families for a week or more. Maybe work, family, physical limitations, or even financial considerations. So these are things we hope that you'll be thinking about and we hope we have time to discuss. Okay, yes, if you have questions, please write them down because we're uh, hopefully have some time here. Okay, so I drew the short stick. I get to talk about ecology. Uh, so how can we be ecologically responsible? Uh, Maggie and I are different heights. <laughs> so I saw these interesting statistics. In our country, the health, or well, in, in worldwide, the healthcare sector contributes three to ten percent of greenhouse gas emissions in any country, and I think in the U.S. it's probably closer to ten percent. And the uh, healthcare consumes eight percent of the total energy used in the U.S. in one year. The operating rooms generate twenty to thirty percent of hospital waste. And as uh, Dr. Tarpley was saying, those red bags, when you're done with a case, those all have to, are regulated waste and have to be taken care of carefully. Uh, and the OR consumes three to six times more energy than the rest of the hospital. This is the one that I found interesting. In one year, the healthcare conference industry, this is worldwide, produces carbon emissions equivalent to those produced in the U.S. I found that kind of hard to believe, but then I started thinking about the number of healthcare conferences around the world. I can tell you, when I first went to Singapore about 25 years ago, we would have maybe one healthcare conference in the country uh, maybe a month. And now they probably have one or two a week. And so the number of conferences worldwide, as well as in the U.S., has just uh, exploded. And you think that most of the people going to those conferences are probably going to fly. Uh, and so this is the other statistic that goes with that. A return flight for one person from the U.S. to Rwanda creates 3.1 tons of CO2 equivalents. One person in sub-Saharan Africa, in one year, produces one-tenth of a ton. See the discrepancy there. 
So, what does ecologically responsible mean to you? Is it local environmental problems, either in your own locality or where you're going to visit? Is it climate change? Do we as Christians have a scriptural mandate to take care of our world? And I think if we look at Genesis number 1, when God finished creating the world, he turned over the, the trees and the, the seeds for food for man, and they were to have dominion over the uh, birds of the air, the fish in the sea, and the animals. And I think we do have a responsibility to take care of God's creation. What about traveling with fossil fuels? And I think Maggie mentioned that a little bit already. What about clean water? I can remember going to uh, uh, West Kalimantan in Indonesia several years ago to a mission hospital. And it was at the end of their drought season. And all their water had to be brought in by truck. And that was for the guest house where we were staying as well as the hospital. We, had to, we, we couldn't have a shower every day. We couldn't use a bathtub. We had little dippers of water that we would uh, get uh, wet and then blather up and then dip it to clean off the soap. So you may not be able to have a 10 or 15 minute hot shower every day in some of these places that you're going to go to. What about single-use medical equipment and supplies? And we'll talk a little bit about about in in a minute. Something else I don't think we think about when we donate equipment, particularly to low-income countries, is service and repair. Okay, I get a company to donate a robotic surgical machine to a mission hospital in Africa. It probably would last six months to a year. To get that machine serviced, they've got to fly somebody out from Europe and then the travel usually by road to get to that mission hospital. Tremendously expensive, not only in dollars, but also in fossil fuels. So, things that I think you need to think about are host. You need to recognize the amount of time it's taking for your host to host you. Uh, It interrupts their schedule. Uh, try to be low maintenance. Don't expect them to wait on you hand and foot. Don't expect on them to provide all the meals for you. Usually they'll have some way that you can get food, but don't expect them to do everything for you. See how you can help them. The other thing, and this is already mentioned, be respective of their suggestions and requirements. You may be in some countries, uh, like Muslim countries, where women are expected to wear dresses, to have wear long sleeves, maybe even use a head covering. You may feel comfortable at home having a beer, drinking wine with your meal. There will be some mission hospitals that have a total ban on alcohol. If you're not willing to, take, uh, to follow those requirements, you ought not to go. Also, I think we need to be sensitive to the local environmental problems. And as an example, I had a friend who was working in Ethiopia, and they had a group, a team come to help do cervical screening. Uh, And they brought boxes of disposable plastic speculums, which we use all the time, single use. It's the next day after they'd done their first big clinic, she smelt this peculiar odor in the air. And what it was, they were burning the speculums they had used the day before because they had no other way of getting rid of them. And 
think of the contamination and things uh, that was happening with that. So, think about these. Supplies. Disposable versus reusable equipment. As, as Dr. Tarpley already said, in our ORs, we throw everything away. Uh, disposable versus reusable. Things that we would use one time, most low-income countries will use over and over again. Another example is from my field. I'm an otolaryngologist, and we use nasal pharyngoscopes all the time. Those have to be sent out to be sterilized after every use. So the solution to that is make them disposable. You can now buy for $170, which seems like a lot of money, a disposable nasal pharyngoscope, uh, and it has a camera in it. It has light in it. Uh, you use it one time. If you're just doing it in the clinic, I can do a nasal pharyngoscopy in less than a minute, and it gets thrown in the trash. Uh, but it's cheaper than for the hospital to buy the original equipment and send each one, after each use, send it to be gas sterilized and then be brought back to the clinic. But think of the amount of waste and things that have to be taken care of with that. Antibiotics. When you go to a hospital, uh, antibiotics that we would use as first-line drugs in some of these mission hospitals are probably going to be, number one, expensive, number two, limited supply, and they may want to save those for special cases. So you need to ask your host, what are the appropriate antibiotics for me to use? Because there may be some things they don't want you to use. Sutures. You know, we surgeons, we, you know, a lot of times we have unlimited supply, unlimited different types, different sizes, different materials, different needles. Uh, if you go to a mission hospital, there may be a limited variety of things that you have. You need to be aware of that and be used to it. Also, don't waste. Don't take one, make one suture and then ask for a new packet. Uh, and don't ask them to open up a bunch of packets that you don't use. We don't, we don't think twice about doing that type of thing. Surgical supplies. Again, we talked about uh, disposable paper gowns, disposable paper drapes. Uh, the other thing that used to drive me crazy in the OR, the nurses would open a packet of, of cotton, nap, uh, uh, cotton towels that we used to drape. Maybe we would use one or two, and there would be three or four that would just get thrown away and never be used. I used to take those home. Uh, but in, a, you know, in these countries, uh, you know, they, have to throw, they have to get rid of that stuff. So it really drives me crazy when people collect things that are left over in our hospitals, put it in a container, their one-time use, put it in a container, the expense of shipping it to Africa, to a mission hospital, and it's only to be used once. And so I think you need to think about those things. Anesthesia gases. Somewhere around uh, 10 to 20% of the greenhouse gases in, a, in the hospital are caused by anesthesia. There are ways, there are gases they can use that are less contaminating, and there are, I'm not an anesthesiologist, if there are some of you that are, I think there are techniques that you have low flow that you can save and not use so much. The other thing is, when I first started out in ENT, we probably did a third to a half of our procedures under local anesthesia. Now, we almost always put everybody to sleep. You don't have to listen to the patients crying and... Uh, <laughs> 
and saying, oh, that hurts and things like that. But when it comes to, like, for instance, anesthesia, it works really very well if you're careful. And so probably should think about doing more things on local anesthesia again, particularly when we go overseas. Water use. I already mentioned the water problem that in the hospital that we visit in West Kalimantan. You may have to be careful, particularly if you go to a place like Agome Hospital in Niger. Uh, desert area, limited amount of water. So you need to take that into consideration. Plastics. When I first started going to China about 30 years ago, you go to the hotel or a guest house, we'd always have a thermos jug in the room full of hot water. So you knew that was safe to drink. Today, no matter what country you go to, no matter how poor it is, you can buy bottled water in plastic bottles. I can't imagine the amount of plastic waste that's created with drinking water. It's a lot safer, but think of the waste that there is associated with it. So, what can we do to be more ecological in a sustainable way? I think we need to be conscious and try to reduce waste. Some of the things that I'm talking about, things that we would throw away, one-time use. Think how you can make that reusable things. And, and I can tell you, in these, in these uh, low-income countries, they much prefer to have like cotton gowns, cotton towels that they can wash and re-sterilize. Uh, I don't know that they do this much anymore, but I can remember when I first started going overseas, uh, they would take rubber gloves, they would wash them, reuse them, and in fact, they would check to see if there are holes. If there are holes, they'd put a little rubber patch on it. Uh, and my problem is, I have big hands. And so they would give me their re-sterilized gowns, and I probably would have to use two or three pairs before I could get one that didn't tear when I was putting it on. Think how you can conserve energy. Maybe be sure to turn off the electricity and the air conditioning when you go out for the day. Maybe not even using air conditioning as much as you would at home. Minimize our carbon footprint. We talked about that, and I talked about how much carbon we produce by flying to Africa. So how can we cut down on that? And I am a major offender in that. I fly 100,000 miles a year. I enjoy. I'll go to Africa for a week and come home, and then maybe three weeks later go back again. Or Anyway. One of the things I think we need to think about, and I need to think about, is can I condense my trips and maybe go once uh, and, and visit three different areas that I'm supposed to go to rather than to make a separate trip each time? But think about how you can reduce your carbon footprint. Support the local communities and what they're trying to do in reducing waste. Educate ourselves before we go on a trip. What are the environmental factors where I'm going to visit? How can I uh, help change that? And think about the environmental impact and what you can do to help with that. So in conclusion, prepare yourselves with environmental factors in mind. Be self-aware of how you can minimize your environmental impact. I was talking to someone in our church, a, a young lady the other day. We were talking about environmental factors in another context. She says, yeah, I, re I really believe we need to be environmental and cut down. She says, as long as it doesn't affect my lifestyle. And I think that's the problem for most of us is, yes, we want to be more environmental as long as it doesn't affect the way I live. Remember, we have a responsibility as Christians to take care of God's creation. 
So, uh, with that, I think we have, we actually we have more time than I thought we might have for questions. So I'm going to ask uh, uh, John and Maggie to come up. Whoops, now I'm walking off. Uh, so, can you bring chairs and... <clears throat> Oh, yeah, 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 we probably better, I guess we better do that because we're recording this. Okay, I hope there are some questions. Please, just one question. Yeah. You left credentialing and privileging off of your slide. About when you go to a foreign country, are your professionals credentialed or do they require credentialing to provide the services that they're providing? We've experienced that over the years of ensuring that our providers were credentialed to provide service, even down to the medical level, like the scope of practice for the medics or the scope of practice for any of the practitioners. And do they meet the standards of care? What standards of care are they required to meet? And are they articulated and agreed upon with the host country? Which country are you talking about? Take your pick. Take your pick? Okay. And I, I think, I think uh, Tarp mentioned that a little bit, but that certainly is true, uh, at least in my experience, in, uh, in having been doing this for 30 years, is that things really have tightened up a lot, and countries are expecting people to do that. Uh, Tarp, do you have yeah, this is a really hot topic. I talk about in the U.S. the buzzwords are really safety and quality. In the global health space, I think uh, neocolonialism and bidirectionality are the huge things that are going on at the present time. They're actually legislative initiatives at present to try to make it possible for our colleagues there to come here and have similar privilege that we have when we go there to get credentialing, including not have to take USMLE 1 and 2 and different things like that. Uh, it's been passed in the legislature in Tennessee, signed by the government in law. The problem right now is what kind of visa can they come on and these sorts of things. And there's actually an article in the Annals of Surgery this week as well relating to those very things. I think you have to know the conditions of where you're going and what's accepted, what's not accepted. Are you going to be scrubbed? Are you going to be teaching? If you're going to go and give lectures only, then I don't think you have to sign up and get credentialed. If you're going to go and touch patients, you need to get credentialed, and you need to go through the process, and that can be time. It takes some time to do that. And so, and so Brian, you want to say something on that? It costs money to sign up. If you're only going for two days to do surgery, and you might not want to pay the $600 to get your license. I think that was the other thing that I didn't mention is that, uh, yeah, if you're going to go do something clinically, it will take at least one or two weeks before you even know what's going on. And I think clinic for do something clinically, you need to plan on probably, what would you say, four weeks would be probably minimal. So this young lady had a question here. That's an ethical problem. He can answer that. (laughs) 
we have those problems in the states as well. Just think about, I mean, what's, what's the government's favorite organ? The kidney, because they could not have a donor. Who gets a kidney, they, they couldn't deny anybody. So they basically say, we will pay for all of the hemodialysis and all the treatment. And the kidney is actually the favorite organ because they couldn't make a decision. Uh, and they had committees that looked into this when kidney transplants first came out. So I think you do a cost-benefit analysis. What's the bang for the buck? I tell my residents I'm happy to spend a dime to get a dollar. I don't want to spend a dollar to get a dime. So what's going to be the best use of this scarce resource for the individual and the patients you take care of? And it's, it's a challenge because, you, you know, are you going to go for a, a, a lottery shot or are you going to use this when you actually have a likelihood of making a difference and having a positive outcome? And one of the things that our residents came back from uh, when they went to Kenya was um, that sometimes it's not the doctor making the decision, it's a financial decision. And which patient can actually afford the medicine, the procedure, um, the, the time away. And so it's a very complicated thing that's, that's very, very difficult. There are no easy answers, but, but it's something that people do face internationally, but also here in the U.S. There's somebody. Well, I'm the non-medical person, so I'm going to jump in. Um, <laughs> no, one of the things that we try to teach is that when we go, we're the guests. We're not the decision makers. And even patient autonomy goes out the window in many places because in many countries, the senior male in the family is going to decide the uh, procedure. It's not going to be that patient that you're taught in the U.S. gets to make a decision. So I'm just saying that when we are guests in whatever country, we sometimes have to say this is their country, this is their decision, and we are not here to change their culture or even their ethical mores because just because we teach one thing in the West does not mean that that's the moral a foundation for every country we enter. So now that may sound a little bit like a cop-out, but, but when we go overseas, what we teach our people is they have to let the local host make sometimes those kind of difficult decisions. And we try not to go in and um, because we're from the U.S. and we think that we've written the book on medical ethics, that, that we have the answer. A couple of things. PACS is very heavily dependent on the short-term volunteer. And there's actually an article coming out, a whole issue coming out in the urology in November this, this month about uh, the pros and the cons and getting to win-win. We actually had a panel at the American College of Surgeons last month on the role of the short-term volunteer and getting to win-win. We want it to be a win for them. We want it to be a positive experience for us. My advice is, I have two things. I have lots of advice. But two things I'd say related to this is, Make one friend. Make somebody that you can relate with, that you can trust, that you can trust them, and ask their opinion. When I had complicated problems, there was a guy named Akin Ola Lauren that I would talk to, and I talked to the head nurse, the matron in the theater named 
this is okay. And those people knew the culture, knew the situation a whole lot better than I did. And this is after I've been living there for, for 15 years. They knew it better. You know, we had people that were volunteers that would come out, and after three days, they could solve all the problems in Nigeria. I'd been there for eight years, and I didn't even know all the questions. But they, could, they knew exactly what they had to do to fix it. So don't take that kind of arrogant uh, I've got all the answers kind of a thing because we see that enough and we don't need that. And don't talk about how much it's costing you and your office overhead and paying your staff while you're gone. You know, you want to be a good guest and not go and be judgmental. And the other thing that I recommend is if you can, I encourage people to, to take like this. I think this is a terrific way to take a two-week and take your kids with you, take your wife with you, your spouse, whatever, Uh and, but go to the same place each time because you don't have a new learning curve every time, and you can follow up on the patients you operated on before. This is obviously a surgically biased uh, group you've got up here, but the internists are the same way. I mean, you can improve your staining for your malaria smears and different things like that. There are things that internists and other people do. Anesthesia especially is incredibly. And talk about what are our goals for this visit. So we would actually discuss with a volunteer before they came, what do we want to get out of this visit for the host institution to upscale? And if it's an anesthesia person coming, it may be to learn how to use a laryngeal mask uh, when you have a difficult intubation. Uh, in urology, it may be doing better cystoscopy or maybe doing direct vision internal urethrotomies for youthful strictures. Talk about ahead of time what you want to accomplish and hopefully work toward that. But I think going to, at, to the same place multiple times is really good. And then I think you go there and you ask, you don't tell, and try to make one friend that you can trust or somebody that can give you advice about what the local culture accepts and expects. There was a question right back there. Yes, John. Is there a problem with going over people who are crashing surgically, they leave and come home, but the people behind aren't capable of taking care of complications? Yeah, there's a great article that I can send you about the seven sins of humanitarian missions, and one is leaving problems and complications and a mess, if you will. So I think you have to, one, say you need to know what the capability of the local people is, and that's why it's really important that you help that surgeon or that physician or that pediatrician uh, anticipating what are some of the outcomes? And this prayer goes back to making our treatment be more grievous than the, than the pathology uh, that warranted the treatment to start with. So I, I really think that you have to be thoughtful. And this is, not, this is not for you to have a savior complex and look what I did and go back and show slides about how wonderful I am and all this kind of stuff. This is how can we upscale, how can we equip, how can we capacity bill transfer skills, but doing it as, and treat these folks the way we would like to be treated ourselves or like our kids to be treated if you're talking to somebody my age. Okay, there was somebody here. Um, I, I hope I'm not, like, going to cause some controversy, but I'm kind of wondering about, we talked about in the plenary Well, the one thing
thing in Nigeria. We worked in Nigeria for 15 years. And one of the things that one of the women, single women missionaries did before, long before we got there was, there was a tradition of um, putting children out to die if their teeth came in a certain way or if when they were born there was something about the placenta or the call or something like that. And she started collecting those children up because they thought the children were evil and would cause problems in the family. So she started collecting those children and she created an orphanage. And those children started growing up and people started seeing that they were not evil and that they weren't a curse. And she changed the culture. Well, in a sense, she did what William Carey did with the sooty and burning the widows. And so once in a while... Um, we say that because of our Christian cultural background, sometimes we do say we, our Christianity is going to trump a culture. And, and we, we as Christians, I don't think we necessarily have to apologize for that, but I think we have to always think about how the spirit in which we do it and the spirit in which she was saving those babies was just to show that they were innocent babies and that they, they were not going to cause, a, 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 you know, a, some kind of evil curse on the community or the families. And so here. And a lot of them grew up to be like teachers and nurses. I mean, she changed it, but it took 30 years, okay? It wasn't two weeks. I think she had gotten credibility already by being there, so that was part of it. So what I would say is you have to pick which windmills to tilt. You can't take on everything. You, first, when you first get there, you need to get some low-hanging fruit and get a few victories, and then maybe you can move on and everything. But I think you earn the right to make certain suggestions and to try to move for certain changes, and I don't think that that just means that you're from the West and you just got off the plane. Okay, somebody yeah, I, I think it's your attitude that is part of it. Yes, ma'am. One thing, one thing I would, uh, Dr. Tarpley showed that book that written by uh, Angie Wall. I would really recommend that. I actually, actually did a session here at GMHC two or three years ago 
I took the recommendations that she had made and put them into the context of how we as a team could look at ethical issues. But that book is very good. I'll come. I'll come. Yeah. I'll come. Yeah. I'm sorry, can you restate his question or his comment? Oh, sorry. So his question was uh, with the uh, ethical, how do we solve the ethical problems and make ethical decisions, particularly on these short-term teams? Did you have a comment no, about that? No, that's fine. You had, a, you had a question as well. I saw your hand. Well, it's sort of a, a comment of bringing all of these things together. I think you touched on a couple of things. The short-term team that flows in and does clinics or does a very special surgery, cleft palate or whatever, um, you know, is very different from when you're going to be there for a longer period of time. You build up rapport. You build up reputation. And so I think that those um, – those differences, I think one of the things that's very hard for Western medical providers is to, we need to lower our expectations. You, you're not going to go, what I tell my team when I do short-term trips is, or even when I advertise it to churches, we're not going in and curing cancer. Like, we're, we're going in, being the hands and feet, opening a door for evangelism. Yes, we want to practice good medicine, but we have limits within the confines of whatever we're doing, in our case, clinics. Um, and so when you're doing a short-term blow-in, blow-up, blow-out versus doing a long-term thing where you, where you gain credibility and can then begin to, to tackle some of those real ethical mores, I think one of the things that would be good for anyone who's going on a short-term trip is they have those uh, various, um, you know, you're at a mass, mass casualty and these are the resources you have, you know, who's getting the ventilator kind of, kind of thing. And that's very hard for all of us in, in Western medicine, but especially for our, our younger colleagues who are coming up because we're in sort of the land of plenty. And it's not that common until COVID where you had to decide who got the ventilator. Um, but that's your reality where you are every day. Well, actually, there's not a ventilator, so it's not that one. But who gets the antibiotics? Yeah. And, and that's very hard for some of our younger colleagues, certainly pre-COVID, And I, I think the other thing I've heard from some missionaries, particularly pediatricians, going overseas to a mission hospital, they're not used to seeing so many people die. Uh, and, at that, and that was kind of what happened with COVID here in the U.S. One last question. I was just going to say a lot of the concerns that I've heard are resolved by proper planning, that you have to know what you're going for, know what you're going to do, uh, list out those tests that you expect to complete, get the country to agree to them, work out all the details before you ever get on the airplane because that will resolve most of the problems. Some of the ethical concerns, you know, if it doesn't fit in the scope of your mission, then you don't do it or you don't get involved in it. You focus on what you're there for. Keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, I'm sorry we're out of time. That's really been a good discussion. Thank you all for participating and thank you for coming.